Welcome to Corpus Christi Anglican Church. I'm Morgan, our planting clergy. Our vision of this church is to become a common people in common prayer for uncommon transformation. This podcast is where you will hear our sermons and other teachings that have happened at Corpus Christi. We primarily serve the region of Springfield, Franconia, and Kingstown. We're glad that you're here. Thanks for taking time to listen. Here's the message. Well, good morning, everybody. It's great to see you this morning. I'm Father Morgan Reed, the vicar here at Corpus Christi Anglican Church. Um, And let me pray for us as we look into the scriptures. You'll notice the picture of Jonah today. That's who we'll be focusing on in our our narrative from the lectionary. In the name of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord Jesus Christ, you stretched out your arms of love on the hardwood of the cross so that everyone might come within the reach of your saving embrace. So clothe us in your spirit, that we, reaching forth our hands in love, may bring those who do not know you to the knowledge and love of you, for the honor of your name. Amen. Well, today is a little bit of a, uh, it is sort of a launch Sunday for lots of things. Um, We're beginning the fall together. We began Catechesis of the Good Shepherd today for the three to eight-year-olds. Um, after the service today, we have confirmation class. If you didn't sign up and you want to do it, we still welcome you to come. Um, there's going to be four, uh, two different formation groups beginning this week on Wednesday night. Uh, and then next Sunday, we start our youth pro- programming for ages nine and up. Uh, there's a lot happening. And then the following month, I'll talk more about this during the announcements, but we're going to do a food drive for the month of October into November for um, with a local organization called Food for Neighbors so that we can serve our neighbors. And, and all of these programs serve discipleship. Like we are making disciples together. And it flows out of a sacramental community becoming the means of grace to the world around us. Right? This is what we learn in our sacraments, what we are taught every single week. Um, Again, like our vision for the church is to become a common people in common prayer for uncommon transformation that starts here and then moves outward as we encounter our neighbors and the people that God brings to us. And one of my deep prayers for this season for us is that we own and, and learn to see God's grace in our stories for ourselves and then in the stories of our neighbors, that we would see and know and grab hold of God's grace in our story so that we can do that for our neighbors as well. And, and looking to our neighbors was actually the, um, the theme of Bishop Warner's email, his newsletter that came out on Thursday. If you uh, don't get the DOMA Diocese of the Mid-Atlantic newsletter, you should sign up for that. Um, it comes out once a month. But Bishop Chris talked a lot about evangelism and and getting to know our neighbors. It was a really timely um, message. And I mean, perhaps probably there was some intention between tying that and Jonah happening in the lectionary this week. Um, But it's a timely reminder because what we encounter here this morning in the book of Jonah is a really horrible prophet. May surprise you. Uh, When you think of Jonah, I would imagine you think of a guy being swallowed by a fish. Um, but here we actually encounter uh, somebody who's pretty horrible. And I'm going to explain more about that as we go along. But I hope by the end of this sermon, you really dislike Jonah. I, I really do. I really hope that you get mad when you read the book of Jonah. 
but that you find God's grace more compelling in really uncommon places for yourself. So get mad at Jonah. You're supposed to. But find God's grace in the midst of of that and realizing that he can give grace to those who are least deserving of it. Jonah is a story about rebellion. Uh, He is somebody who receives God's grace over and over again. And he has no concern for anybody who's around him. He's supposed to be ridiculous. Like that's why he is characterized the way he is. Because what he is is this callous and chilling condemnation against ethnocentrism and against self-promotion that the the Jews who are returning from exiles are supposed to read about uh, and they're supposed to say, I don't want to be like that when they think of their own story. And so when God asks Jonah invitational questions here in chapter 4, those questions aren't meant for Jonah as much as they are meant for you and for me. They were meant for the readers of the narrative. And our frustration with Jonah then is is a call for us to reflect on all the ways that our own self-interest and our desires for comfort keep us from wanting to see God's work of grace happen in other people. It's a warning. Uh, To avoid becoming Jonah, I think what we have to do is recognize God's grace. Jonah missed it multiple times throughout the narrative. We need to recognize God's grace. Then we need to notice God's grace in others. And then we need to love the work of God's grace, even when it's surprising, more than we love our own reputation and our own comfort. And so this first section that we read today, uh, chapter 3, verse 10, uh, through, well, we read all the way through chapter 4, but this little section here, 310 through 4.3, begins this last section of the narrative. And this last section ties up all the themes of the rest of the book. It's a warning not to let self-interest override our love for God and our love for the ways that he's at work. So Jonah, in chapter 3, yelled at people. Right? That's, that's what his prophecy essentially was. He walks through the city of Nineveh and goes... 40 more days and the city is going to be overthrown. That's the content of his prophecy. <laughs> the worst evangelist of all time, right? And, um, and so, but what's fascinating is that as a result of this guy who's yelling in the city, the whole city decides, you know what? He's right. We need to proclaim a fast. I'm not even sure what they knew he was right about because there's no content other than you're just going to be destroyed. But they say, hey, maybe God will preserve us. Let's fast. Let's repent. Even the king says, let's fast. Let's repent. Let's, let's throw ourselves at the mercy of God. Maybe God will spare us. And God does. God have, does not destroy them. He turns. And so the, the book of Jonah is this warning against somebody who presumes on God's grace, i.e. Jonah, with no desire to see it have an effect on other people. It's a condemnation of certain readers who are going to be reading this in the post-exilic community. If you don't know what that means, just a real quick history lesson. The Jews were taken into exile into Babylon, roughly 70 years. They were brought back by the Persians once the Persians defeated the Babylonians. And this community of post-exilic Jews, as they're going back to Jerusalem or still living in Babylon, are having to figure out what does it mean to be faithful to our covenant God in this new situation. And so Jonah serves as a a summary to those people of how not to act. 
Jonah finally tells us uh, why he doesn't go to Nineveh in this section, and it's kind of chilling. Why doesn't he go to Nineveh? It's because he knows that God has over and over again shown himself to be gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disasters of judgment on people. We just know that to be true about God. And so it's really that last part, relenting from disaster, why Jonah doesn't want to go. That's his motivation. I don't want to go preach to the Ninevites because I know you're somebody who will actually not judge them with calamity if they repent. And I'm afraid of that. So God has shown over and over that when his people repent, God functionally changes course. He does, uh, and he doesn't bring the destruction that he promised. It happens over and over again in the scriptures. We think back to Moses interceding on behalf of the people in Exodus 32. And that's an example of, God, don't destroy these people. And God says, well, okay, I won't. Thank you for praying. You know, and, and here, the fear is they might repent, and God might not destroy them, so I don't want to go. Uh, and so Jonah would rather see judgment than he would rather than see compassion. He would rather see corpses lining the streets rather than rejoicing in a city that's been forgiven and restored to something new. And so I hope you find yourself angry at Jonah. I hope that you are mad because he is terrible. He's a really horrible prophet. And so despite Jonah being absolutely terrible, God still lovingly draws him through grace. If you think it was hard for God to show grace to Nineveh, look at Jonah. God still shows grace to Jonah. God poses a question, and I'm going to paraphrase God's question to Jonah. Do you think that it's good that you're angry? Right? We know how we're supposed to answer it. Jonah, do you think this is really a good thing that you're angry about this? Let's think through this a little bit. Right? It feels kind of like the way that you would talk to a three-year-old about how you're feeling. I would know. <laughs> God, God then does this other act of grace, and that's going to serve to illustrate the answer to his provocative question. God springs up this plant. Some traditions have it as a gourd. I think in this one it might be a gourd. Um, probably a castor oil plant, which you can find if you go to the um, Green Spring Gardens and if you go to the uh, National... Um, Not the Arboretum, the other one. Botanical Gardens, yeah. I always think about Jonah when I walk through one of those exhibits and I see the the castor oil plant. Um, This is one of the few times in this book where Jonah shows any emotion. Jonah does not emote, but here he emotes. In verse 6 it says, Jonah was really happy. This is the first time we have Jonah being happy. He was angry in verse 1. He was mad. But here he's happy. He's happy about the plant. And now he had something to shelter him while he watched people die. But then God kills the plant. He brings up a hot wind and Jonah starts to go grow faint under the heat of the sun. Jonah asks God if he can die. God, it's better that I should die than that I should live. Right? It's really dramatic. And when you read the Syriac text of this, it adds, For I am no better than my fathers. Well, who else said that in Scripture? You may not be aware of this, but the only person to ever say that whole sentence uh, is Elijah in the book of 1 Kings. Elijah in 1 Kings 19, 
he's had that big battle with the, the false prophets of Baal. God just consumes the, the offering and he flees into the wilderness. Jezebel wants to kill him. And he says, what's the point? Like nobody is turning to the Lord. I'm on my own. Now, Lord, take my life for I am no better than my father's. And Elijah was a really great prophet. And God says, here's a cake. Sit down. Have a sleep. Right. But here, Jonah is upset because people aren't dying. And he has to sit under the heat. And so he just says, God, it's better that you would just kill me now. So he's actually a literary foil for Elijah. That's how you're supposed to read this. And Elijah is a true prophet, a good prophet. So I hope when you read this, you get angry at Jonah. You should be. I hope that you find yourself uh, angry at him. But I hope that you find that there is a, a lovely invitation of God's grace to the least lovely of people. Jonah complained to God back in verses 2 and 3. And when he complained to God, interestingly, if you read Hebrew, his, his complaint was exactly 39 words. Uh, and here in verses 10 and 11, God sort of claps back at Jonah with a question that is also 39 words. God of the covenant, the God of Jonah's privilege, the God who Jonah worshipped through his rituals, in whose community and culture Jonah found so much comfort and ease, was also the God who made the Assyrians. He's the God who wants to draw people who were not part of his covenant into his covenant community. And that is a surprising grace. And Jonah had showed glee and anger over a plant that he had nothing to do with growing and had nothing to do with its death. And we only see Jonah emote a few times. We see him emote sort of inside the belly of the fish. He calls out in anguish. We see him angry over God not killing the Assyrians. We see him joyful over a plant. And then anger when he gets uncomfortable again. And it could be argued that there is no more narcissistic personality in the Bible than Jonah. So praise God that his love is so much greater than our self-interest. God tells Jonah that he's made the people of Nineveh, oh, and also the animals. And, and how could he not have compassion on them when they turn from their sin and they look to the God who loves them? How could he not have compassion? <clears throat> and then the book ends. That's it. You can sort of feel that when Deanna read it so well. She sort of ended with a question. The word of the Lord. And we're kind of left going, there's got to be more. <laughs> you know? No, there's not. It ends in a question. God gives this question to Jonah and it's sort of like this literary mic drop and God walks out of the room and, and so God um, leaves everybody including the reader in stunned silence waiting for more and so you know I hope that right now you've come to be angry at Jonah um, he is ridiculous and I hope that when you when, when the post-exilic Jews were reading this that they were mad at Jonah and that they as a result of this turned outwards to see what God might do among their neighbors around them. That they saw the neighborhoods and the countries they were placed in the diaspora as the opportunity for God's grace to be lavished on other people. That God would bring them into covenant community with himself because he made all things and he can make all things new. And so I hope that when we read the book of Jonah, 
that we continue uh, to, to read it and to ask hard questions about our own self-interest. Where am I worried about my reputation? Where, where do I have prejudices against individuals or groups of people? Where do I seek comfort more than coming to love my neighbor? Where do I take and put my trust in, in my rituals rather than allowing God being open to the surprising ways that God's grace is at work in other people. So if you want to avoid becoming like Jonah, here are a couple of really practical things that you can do. First, recognize God's grace. Look for it. Embrace it. Hold on to it. Write it down. Keep reminders of it. Know God's grace. Second, see the need for grace in other people. And third, Love the work of God's grace more than our own reputation and comfort. Those three things keep us from becoming a Jonah. First, let's recognize God's grace. Jonah is made to look like a really terrible person, and that is because he is not secure in God's grace. He doesn't notice it, and so he doesn't feel any confidence in it. He doesn't recognize it at all. And God rescued him several times in this book. God rescued him with a fish. God rescued him with a plant. Even in Jonah's obstinance, God draws him to repentance through questions that are introspective. He doesn't just say, Jonah, you missed it. He actually is trying to draw Jonah to repentance. And so we need to familiarize ourselves with God's grace. I love that we serve a God who draws us in with questions about where his grace is present. He does that for each one of us. Perhaps at the end of each day, you can begin to write out uh, an answer to this question. Where have I seen God's grace at work in my life today or this week? But what we need to do is make sure that we are cultivating habits that identify God's grace in our lives. We need to have habits that help us identify where God is at work in his grace. Second, we need to find God's grace in other people. If we can't locate the grace of God in our lives, guaranteed it will be impossible to see God's grace at work in other people. Um, Our neighbors are a great example for us. You know, get to know your neighbors. Get to know their names. Get to know a bit of their journey. I know some people are really complicated, and maybe you have a difficult relationship with your neighbor, but then get past that and ask, I wonder if there's something that is in their story or my story that makes it really hard to love them. Or to find God's grace in them. Get to the point where even if they're not a Christian, you might be able to naturally ask them, hey, is there something that I can pray about for you this week? Like, what if that actually became normal? So, you know, I've got Christians who aren't neighbors, and and we've gotten to the point with them where they actually will occasionally ask me to pray for them for something, and it feels natural. Um, I know it's possible. And so what if we got to that point with our pre-Christian neighbors who are on a journey where that, that kind of conversation actually began to feel normal? And, and the thing is, what we need to do then to get there is to practice it here. If we practice that kind of conversation in the church, it trains us to have that kind of conversation outside the walls of the church. And then as you get to see God's grace in other people, it can become natural then to point it out for them. Man, here's where I see, like, I see God working in you, right? Or you can say it another way, like, there's a real blessing in your life here that I see. And to be able to point that out for people. 
And so third, we need to love the work of God's grace more than our own um, comfort or reputation. And while reputation does go into this, especially for Jonah, I think for a community in this area, comfort is often more of a difficult hurdle. Um, And one aspect of that is stepping out of what feels comfortable to do hard things. The other aspect of that is saying, who makes me feel uncomfortable and why? I remember having a coworker of mine years ago. He discovered Jesus, and that changed his heart. And there were still a lot of externals that did not yet change. And um, he and I worked at a coffee shop together. And so he was not totally inundated with the church's culture. But man, he, he loved Jesus. He was figuring it out. And we were having coffee together, and he goes, it was before I was ordained, he goes, man, like Jesus is so expletive cool right I, I won't say it it's being recorded um, like I excl- you know, uh, expletive I expletive love what he did for us on the cross man like that is so expletive cool right and so he actually didn't go to the church that I was going to at the time I was an Anglican but you know it made me it made me wonder like would this guy be welcome at my church? Like, would people love him and give space for him for where he's at? Um, you know, he would probably have to leave the service halfway through to smoke a cigarette and then come back. And, like, would my church be okay with that? So, I am so grateful that in this church plant, God has brought us so many wonderful, mature Christians. Right? That's a huge blessing. As you're starting a church... You want people who can build a solid foundation and base. Um, And I also want to create space for the awkwardness of loving people well, where they're at. I want people who are going to discover Jesus for the first time to feel like, hey, this church can hold space for where I'm at. They may not be able to articulate it that way, but what if we did? And, And wouldn't it be amazing if we had to prepare adults for baptism or our older children for baptism? who had to learn the basics of the catechism, like, what is the Trinity? Who's Jesus? Why is it important that he's God and man? Um, And why does a church even exist? Like, what if somebody had to learn that for the first time here? I would love that. It would create problems that are good problems to have. And wouldn't it be amazing if somebody learned the genuine love of Christ for the first time in this community? Like, I see that love with you, and I love that it's here. And I would love for some of our neighbors to experience it with you. And, and that's what it means to me for, for loving God's gracious work in others more than loving my own comfort and more than loving my own reputation. So the question that God ends with Jonah is the same question for us. You know, Jonah, you have compassion for things that you never actually labored for. How can I not have compassion for all the people who live around you and all the creatures that I have made. Don't be Jonah. Don't be Jonah. Don't be that guy right there who's looking over at the city under his gourd. (laughs) But instead, discover God's grace. Share it with people. Look for it in other people and love what God is doing in other people more than our own comfort and more than our own self-promotion. There's this amazing quote I heard um, 
Leslie Allen, he's a commentator, has this, has this quote. He says, A Jonah lurks in the heart of every Christian, whimpering his insidious message of smug prejudice, empty traditionalism, and exclusive solidarity. He that has ears to hear, hear let him hear and allow the saving love of God which has been outpoured in your hearts to remold your thinking and your social orientation. Let us pray. Almighty God, we pray that you would always make us aware of your grace. Would you help us to find your grace in in really unexpected places? And may we love your grace at work much more than we love our own comfort. Help us to love our neighbors well with your love and to speak the things that we are called to speak, to hold our tongues when we're meant to hold our tongues. In the name of Christ we pray, who with you and the Holy Spirit lives and reigns, one God, in glory everlasting. Amen.